Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the first sponsor of On the Other Side, Rabbit Hole. Rabbit Hole is allowing users to earn crypto while they explore the weird world of Web3, guiding new users down the crypto rabbit hole in a curated way to make sure that people coming into the space are not only using positive sum protocols, but are also starting to build their on-chain resume as they do it. So the longer term vision for Rabbit Hole is building essentially the open credentialing system for Web3. To build that credentialing system, it's important that they're decentralized. And so the Pathfinder program is paving the way for decentralizing Rabbit Hole and creating an open system built by the community, not by a single team. If you're interested in learning more about Rabbit Hole, check out Rabbit Hole at rabbithole.gg. You can also check them out on Twitter, rabbithole underscore gg. And if you're interested in learning more about the Pathfinder program, which is the first step to the Rabbit Hole DAO, you can check it out at rabbithole.gg slash pathfinder. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Aaron and Rodney from The Ready, who are sort of experts in the self-management world. So I'm so excited to chat. Aaron and Rodney, thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks for having us. I cannot wait to talk about self-managing orgs, governance, all the things that you think about all the time. Before we get into that, do you want to do just quick intros into what you're working on and thinking about, and maybe we'll go Rodney and then Aaron. Yeah. So, uh, hey, it's so nice to talk to you again, Chase. Um, I'm such a big fan of this pod. I've learned so much from you that I'm just delighted to be here. So um, I'm Rodney Evans. I work the Ready. Um, what I'm working on right now is transforming organizations, large and small, and particularly focusing on our own organization, the Ready, as really pushing a lot of the edges around participatory change, around self-management, around the practical application of older theory to sort of be a model and be a case study and be able to really do the things and mess with the things that we can't always mess with in our client organizations while still keeping a hand in some of the larger organizations out there in the world who are looking to become more modern themselves. I love it. And modern means self-managing, right? <laughs> to I'm me, it does. Sure we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Damn well better. I hope so. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm I'm Aaron. I uh, founded The Ready six years ago and work with Rodney on, on that uh, company and project and a lot of our client work. I wrote a book called Brave New Work that's all about how to transform or create organizations that don't become bureaucracies. And uh, I also uh, spun a company out of The Ready last year called Murmur that helps organizations make agreements online together collaboratively in a more elegant way. Um, so yeah, that's my, that's my story. I love it. And as a side note, um, Aaron and Rodney host the Brave New Work podcast, which I'm currently obsessed with. First of all, I had the honor of being on the podcast talking about DAOs and Web3, but also I'm always looking for mental models of things that people have already figured out that very much apply to DAOs and Web3. And I feel like this is one of those gems on my treasure hunt where it's like, <laughs> yes, this is knowledge that we need. So I'm so excited to chat about all those things. Before we get into that, I would love to know how each of you fell down 
the crypto rabbit hole. So maybe this time we switch it up and we go Aaron and then Rodney. Okay, cool. So uh, I well, I've, I went in and out several times. So in, I think it would have been like 2013, 2014 at my previous company, we actually went in on Bitcoin pretty early. So we uh, super cleverly bought 25 Bitcoins at a thousand a pop and then sold them promptly later that year for like 1100 a pop. Um, <laughs> so you can write that down as one of my many dumb moves. Uh, I mean, you we made 2500 bucks. So yeah, that's a win. <laughs> we, were, we were definitely clued into something there and then just kind of side eyed the space for a while. When DAOs as a concept started to come out, definitely looked into the DAO and the whole thing again with a fresh set of eyes. Um, I actually wrote a little bit about DAOs in Brave New Work before this whole pandemic thing happened and everything popped. So that was sort of the second look and pullback. And then more recently this year, seeing just really the groundswell of people like you in public forums like Twitter talking about decentralization and more, you know, inclusive and cooperative and human ways of working. I was like, wait a second. Now this feels like it's not just interesting technologically, but it's interesting from a values and principles standpoint. And so we kind of went, you know, all in, both in terms of learning and experimenting, in terms of investing, the ready invested in Colony and several other DAO-related projects, and has a pretty sizable crypto portfolio as well. And then just roping other people in around me into into this exploration. Yeah, I would say I'm still falling. So I'm earlier on my journey. My husband has been investing and trading crypto for a long time. And so I like hear about it and then tune it out and then hear about it some more. And then honestly, for me, it wasn't really until I started learning about DAOs that I sort of caught the bug because I'm such an org nerd. And um, and Chase, you and I talked about this, I think, before we even hit record on our podcast. But to me, when I started to really understand what DAOs are doing, I was like, oh, this is like the piping inside of the house. And like, this is all of the stuff that in client organizations that I work with, we don't get to touch. Like DAOs are figuring out this very foundational infrastructure part of organizations and 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 that has always been a piece of of modernization and doing transformation work and creating adaptive orgs that has been hard to access and sort of the more i learned about daos the more i was like oh okay so this is the chaos end of the organizational <laughs> spectrum but how much more fun is it to learn about and play in constraining chaos so that awesome stuff emerges than trying to like chip away at calcified bureaucracy? <laughs> so I'm still like, you know, I'm still falling and I'm still learning and I still feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose. So be gentle. <laughs> I love that. We can take a gentle approach. Thank you. Um, before we dive into like what self-managing orgs are, I want to define a term or two. But the first one is probably like when you talk about clients, for anyone who isn't familiar with some of the things that you're doing at the ready, what is like the brief sort of synopsis of what a client actually looks like and what that relationship is looking like in terms of how the ready engages with clients? Sure. So most of our clients at the ready are large traditional organizations. There are certainly exceptions to that. We've worked with startups, we've worked with scale-ups, we've worked with nonprofits, but our bread and butter are large companies. I look at sort of the maturation of systems and a lot of these companies are working in ways that are decades old. 
So they don't have Slack, for example. And so these companies are crumbling under the weight of their own bureaucracy in much the way we see political systems crumbling. And the reason that they come to the ready is because they want to be more nimble. They want to be more agile. They don't really understand where all the money they spend goes and where it goes is into um, a lot of nonsense. And so we work with companies like that to instantiate and teach and coach new ways of working. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot today about the fact that the ready concerns itself much more with containers than content. So we will teach you a container for making decisions, but we will not tell you what we think those decisions should be. Um, and we do that in a way that's that's principled, that is about creating more autonomy, more self-management, more people positivity, etc. Much like DAOs, which we indeed, love. Indeed. <laughs> Oddly familiar stuff. Yes. I seriously think that there are a few concepts where you could just like take out company or organization and replace it with DAO and it would be like, yeah, checks out. And a lot of the stuff that the ready does is very much along those lines. So I'm very excited to dive into all this stuff. At the very foundational level, when you think about self-managing organizations, what are they? Like, what does that mean? And how are they run? Because I feel like that's the basis of what DAOs intend to be. But I also want to understand if your definition of self-managing organizations is the same or different from how I think a lot of people in Web3 tend to think about DAOs and the way that they run. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the simplest way to think about this is actually these two principles that we had a guest on our show share from Morningstar, which is a tomato processing company that's been self-managed for several decades. Um, and when they started on that journey, they set down these two ideas, don't use force and keep commitments. And and I think they're very elegant ideas. There are obviously much more technical and and interesting and nerdy ways to unpack these ideas. But essentially what it means is, you're not using traditional positional force, like in a hierarchy where I'm your boss or you're my boss, or there's some kind of power that I can exert over your day-to-day -day existence or else you're fired, but really thinking more about how do we get as much power distributed across the system as possible? And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone else has to lose power, but actually that we're kind of multiplying the power in the system so that we can create what we need to create. And if you look at a traditional business or, or bureaucracy, they run on permission. So the whole ecosystem basically runs on the idea of like, you can't do anything until we tell you that you're allowed or that you have permission or that you have the role or the promotion or whatever the hell it is, right? But you need to be told. And the way self-managing systems tend to work is on constraint. So actually, you can do anything unless we say that you can't, unless we make an agreement or a decision collectively that that's not something that we want to have happen. And so it's a lot more about just carving off the edges of possibilities, things that we think might hurt us or kill us as an organization or a movement, and then leaving all the rest of the space for creativity and judgment. And there are different ways of creating the structures within that space. And there are different ways of creating the agreements that constrain that behavior, but they don't look much like the systems that we're all used to working in. I love that. And I think this idea of structure in DAOs is something that I think sometimes we just like avoid mm -hmm. because we sort of feel like, or the current dominant narrative tends to be that decentralization and structure are almost mutually exclusive, <laughs> like, which I think 
one of the really interesting things listening to you guys on the Brave New Work podcast has been this idea that decentralized organizations require a lot more structure than Mm -hmm. hierarchical organizations. It's just a different type of structure. And so when you talk about structure in these containers, tactically, what does that actually look like? And then, and we can probably get into this after the first one, but (laughs) um, how do you define those things in a way that doesn't feel hierarchical mm-hmm. or yeah. centralized as people in the DAO world would be very concerned about. Right. So a few things come to mind. Most of us have a very ingrained mental model about what we mean by structure. And it looks like a pyramid or it looks like a teacher in the front of a classroom or it looks like a politician who's been elected in some way. And what we mean by structure is really just how are you organizing And that shouldn't really be controversial if you get to the essence of what structure means. The way that I would apply that in self-management or in a DAO and the mental model shift that's really important is in traditional systems, we organize the work around the people. So we draw an org chart and Chase is at the top and Aaron and I work for Chase. And that means Chase approves our work and she delegates to us and we report back to her, et cetera, et cetera. In self-managing structure, we want to organize the people around the work. So the first principle is, what are we trying to do? And from there, what are the kinds of roles that we need in order to do it? So it's not just about codifying a power structure. It's about getting really clear and explicit about what we're up to and how we're going to get there. And when you start to unpack monolithic jobs or monolithic structures into a more atomized, more role-based, more contribution-oriented, quote-unquote, structure, you get a lot more flexibility. You know, then decentralization and centralization sort of become a moot point um, because if the work is work that requires centralization, you organize it that way. And if it doesn't, you preferably don't. And we just get a lot more fluidity thinking about structure in that way. How do you think about defining those roles? Like, so it's funny because I feel like coming from the world of Web3, my brain <laughs> constantly searches for points of centralization and then decides that those are bad, which is probably mm. not actually the way that I should be thinking about organizations because maybe at a network level that works, but at a human level, I think that's probably not the best pattern to constantly look for and then sort of moralize. But I'm curious, when you think about, you know, a given initiative, who does decide who's going to take on a certain role? Like, how is that actually made as a decision with a group of people? Right, right. Well, I think the first thing is, before you get into the work of doing any agreement making, you almost have to do underlying work around the principles of how you operate. So in the same way that like, what is happening on chain is predefined and operates in a certain way with a certain set of rules around voting and the holding of tokens or NFTs, et cetera. The same thing is true in a self-managed organization. And so I actually have in my hand a book written in the 90s by Gerard Endenberg, who was one of the early progenitors of sociocracy, which is a way of organizing that's fairly self-managing. And they just set up four rules at the bedrock level, consent, which basically said, we're going to make decision-making through consent. And consent means a decision can only be made when no one has any reasoned objection to it, so it's safe to try. Circles, which are basically squads, pods, you name it, right? Different collections of people organizing that can kind of direct their own work and their own agenda. 
linking between those circles. So there's some sense of connection and uh, parentage between them, like that a circle can create a subcircle, et cetera. And then election, that roles are elected from among the people that are affected by them. And from that base level of principles or rules, this whole possibility space emerges for, all right, we're going to create some roles and we're going to fill them. Well, how should we create them? Well, we can create them any way we want as long as we all consent to it. Okay, cool. Let's create them where we make proposals just like you're doing in a DAO, but instead of doing them maybe randomly in a Discord, we do them in a more structured way where we're trying to seek that consent. And how should we fill them? Well, how should we fill them? Let's consent to an agreement about how that role should be filled. So when we create a role at the ready, we will say when we're creating it, I'm proposing this role. The role is, you know, investment manager for our assets. It has these responsibilities. It has these decision rights or this kind of concentrated authority. And here's how it's filled. It's filled by election or it's filled by rotation or it's filled by an outside hire that will be made by this individual or this role. And that's part of the proposal. And so, of course, when everyone consents to it, they're not just consenting to the role, but also the mechanism by which it gets filled. And by the same token, I could have just made a proposal that says all roles will be consented to and filled by election. And then that would be the default. So a lot of it is about agreeing on the rules of play for how we make proposals and agreements, and then letting that mechanism drive the content of, well, what do we need and what's needed now and trying not to get ahead of ourselves. And so hopefully we'll talk more about it later, but just because you can make a proposal doesn't mean you should. And what really needs to happen is we tune into what are the tensions in the organization right now that are preventing us from achieving our purpose Let's make proposals and agreements about that stuff. So if it is about filling roles, then we'll do that. But if that's not a big deal right now, let's focus on what is. And one one bit to add on that that I think is applicable in the DAO space, it's certainly applicable in our own self-managing organization, is I often say to people, because I think people get into the headspace of like, oh, we're going to spend all of our time drafting working agreements or drafting roles or doing, you know, doing all of this work around the how, my general take on roles, but this applies to most things, is sense the tension, like, you know, we don't have marketing help. Okay, cool. I'm a marketer. Start doing the thing. Like nobody's stopping you, presumably, from doing the thing. And then when you have enough data from doing the thing, then make the proposal. Then codify the thing that has already happened so that it has the degree of formality or consent that it requires. But don't always try to do that work first. Because I think that's where autonomous organizations get jammed up. They try to behave like bureaucracies. They're like, oh, we'll plan it all out first. It's like, no, 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 that's not the point. Go do it and then write it down because it's true. And that's a really good example of, I see a lot of people in the DAO space throwing around the word emergence, but it's not immediately clear that they know what it means. (laughs) And like what it means is that structure emerges, right? So when you look at a set of birds flying in in a formation or a murmuration, they are decentralized. No one's driving the bus. They are free to do what they want. But the simple rules that are governing them lead to an emergent structure. And so the same thing Rodney just described is so, is so, you know, elegantly put, which is like, I see a marketing opportunity, I start to do some marketing, that means it's emerging, and then we name it, you know, then we then we encode it and and make it something that's a little bit more stable once we have some data. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of, I tweeted about this a long time ago, but one of the co-founders of Wikipedia talked a bit about this where they tried something that was a lot like Wikipedia before Wikipedia, and it was super structured and everything had rules. 
And basically what he realized was like you needed people to be able to do what they want and then exactly what you're talking about where you codify the rules that have sort of already been adopted by the community and just make them more official and that just tends to work a lot better. Now, what I think is interesting about all of this, and there are so many different like avenues that my brain is going down right now, but I love the idea of consent-based governance in the sense that the question is not like, should we do this thing? It's mm-hmm. like, will this thing cause irreversible or such harm to our organization that we should not try it? That like blew my goddamn mind seriously when I listened to your episode on participatory governance because I was like, oh, this is why this should happen. So first, I think it would probably be helpful for you to give like a brief overview of that. But I think that what's interesting underlying all of this is like who is actually participating in this? Because in DAOs, of course, it's pretty permissionless. It's not like an organization where you've already hired people. So maybe first giving a brief overview of participatory governance would be good. But then I want to dive into like how much of this translates and how we can use it in DAOs. Sure. So um, to start with, you know, we use the term participatory governance, but really there are lots of different names for this. Um, In holacracy, they call it integrative decision making. Uh, They call it consent decision making and sociocracy. Other people might even mistakenly refer to it as consensus decision making. But the idea is that we're looking for avoiding, again, we're trying to constrain, right? So we're looking for harm rather than for perfect And usually when we make decisions, we're like, is this a perfect idea? Is this the best idea? Is this right? But because we operate in complexity, and I think the pandemic has been a good object lesson in that, where we can't predict the future, we can't know what will work, even though we think we're all experts, we're all really amateurs in the face of complexity at some level. Um, It's a lot better, actually, to have an organization that's just slowly moving in the direction of the future in a lot of different ways all the time. And so the the participatory governance idea is that we would make decisions, at least our primary decisions, our primary agreements, based on consent. And consent, the question you ask yourself is, is this safe to try? Or they used to say, is it good enough for now, safe enough to try? And is it good enough for now, safe enough to try is a great filter because it asks the question of like, is there value here? What's the nature of the risk here? And if you can find a way through, then you can then you can actually do something. And it's by doing things that we learn about what will work and what what will happen in complexity. We we literally talk about probe, sense, respond rather than like plan and then do as the model that you need to use. And so really what we're talking about is not my preference, right? I have a preference that might be, I think we should redo the logo with this agency, or I think we should launch this token on this date. That's my preference. But I also have a a range of tolerance, which is broader than that. It's somewhere else, right? It's sort of a bigger surface area than just my preference. And those are things where it's like, well, I could tolerate that. Maybe I'd learn something. Maybe it would work out. I'd be okay with it. And so, yeah, the idea of doing participatory governance is inviting everyone who has a stake in the decision. And that might be an entire community. It might be a leadership team. It might be a set of people inside a pod or a squad. But coming to the table, the right folks and saying, here's a proposal something that we've articulated, written down, expressed, here's what we intend to do. Are there questions around the table to understand that proposal? So that's kind of the understand part. Are there suggestions around the table that might improve the proposal? And then finally, that consent check is, are there objections around the table, reasons that it would cause us harm, hold us back from achieving our purpose in a way that just doesn't make it worth it? And then 
if we can get to that point of consent, we move forward. If there's an objection in the participatory governance process, then we actually integrate the objection rather than just call it quits. Most orgs, if the boss says no, that's a dead proposal. In this model of decision making, let's say I propose that we, you know, open a Taco Bell in the lobby of our building, and you're like, Ugh, I object to that. That's a terrible idea. The push is now back on you to say, what would you change about the proposal that would make it safe to try? And you might say, well, it's only safe to try for me if we just try getting delivery of Taco Bell for a week and see how everyone in the building likes it. Then we'd have more data and then we could reconsider the next version of this proposal. That's safe to try for me. And as long as that meets my need to move forward, then we found this like integrated place and this way to move forward. So objections lead to changes that make things safe. And most proposals, not all, but maybe nine out of 10, find a way forward. And that allows the org to find a way forward and learn something. I love this because, and we talked briefly about this, I think at the end of when we were recording the last podcast on Brave New Work, but I love this because it changes the default from no to yes on proposals. Like I think right now in DAOs, we tend to default to no and there's no real accountability or responsibility on any individual person that's super clear, at least in most DAOs, to say, okay, cool, but what would make this work? Mm. And so this mechanism sort of handles a lot of those challenges that we're seeing now. Something that I'm grappling with in my head that I cannot like figure out exactly how I should be thinking about is because you're defaulting to yes, mostly, or finding a way to move forward. Now, of course, like this doesn't mean that you're just going to pass a bunch of proposals that don't make sense. That's sort of the whole mechanism. But because you're defaulting to yes, and that requirement is on people who say no, like to basically make sure that it passes and figuring this out, it feels like who can propose something matters a lot. If you do have bad actors, then you're in a weird situation where you could just have a million proposals. Now, <laughs> I think that's my crypto brain being like, there's adversaries that we have to be careful of scenario. and design against. Yeah. yeah. But I am curious how you think about this because at the Ready and other organizations, I'm guessing most people are hired already. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of already like a quality filter. In DAOs, you have communities, which can be token holders. It can be people who vibe with the DAO's vision and don't hold any tokens. And then you have like contributors, which can vary significantly in terms of their involvement in the actual organization. And so I think there are sort of two questions for me here. One is like just basic filtering. But then the second one is how much context is required for an individual to propose something that's worth going through this process? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I mean, I'm going to start from the end and sort of work my way backwards. To me, there's something fundamental in terms of just good decision architecture that you're touching on, which is this. And this isn't... Um, This isn't like necessary to do participatory governance, but it's something that I would say to any group who's trying it, which is wherever you can put the authority, the subject matter expertise or the domain knowledge and the execution of the thing together. So ideally, I'm not coming to a group to propose something that you, Chase, know about, but Aaron is going to have to do the work for. Like, 
I want to be coming to propose things that potentially have impact to the group, but that I really have like a stake in or some ownership over, or I'm going to execute personally, or a role I want to hold, or an agreement that I think is important for our group. So that's like just a like a, a little bit of constraining that helps groups understand. The second thing is um, proposing takes some vulnerability. And it takes like some swagger to just see what's happening and go like, here's what I think we should do and to do that very publicly and transparently. And so even though I understand um, the, the sort of worst case scenario playing out in one's brain, I also would say the transparency and social pressure around a process like integrative decision making takes care of a lot of that. Like people just don't mm. tend to propose dumb stuff because people don't tend to want to look dumb in front of really big groups of people. And we also sort of have some agreements that like the rules of the game are not that I listen to all of this feedback and then I completely ignore it. The rules of the game are if we're going to use this process, we're going to use it to make proposals better. And then the last thing that I think just like keeps us safe from harm is that when stupid proposals get passed and they do occasionally, we have the flexibility to make a new one. So I have seen proposals get passed many times that a bunch of people in the room were like, I guess it's safe to try. I truly hate it. And within a couple of weeks, a new proposal has been brought forward. So like these are not meant to be things that are forever. If we look at proposals as being passed and experimental and we hold them a little bit lightly, I think some of the fear and some of the charge diminishes. That makes a lot of sense. And it kind of brings up this question that I know you both have talked a little bit about on the Brave New Work podcast um, that I've thought a lot about that I think we talked briefly about, which is this question of how social dynamics play into all of this. Because there are certainly people who have a lot more social soft power and it feels like that's sort of awkward territory when it comes to voting because like in the grander scheme of things, when you talk about um, this question of, okay, only the people who have um, a stake in this decision maybe participate in the voting. And so the way that my brain automatically sort of processes that is like, okay, cool. If a DAO has a working group or a pod and it's a marketing decision, a proposal should come up in the marketing pod or working group and really should probably only be voted on by the contributors within that working group, which feels like it makes a lot of sense. However, those are also the people who you probably work closest with and don't want to offend. (laughs) And so it does feel like there's this strange social dynamic. Um, and so I'm curious how you navigate that in self-managing orgs. I mean, this this is exactly it, right? That the game is played at the level you play it at. So what a lot of what time and energy goes into is rather than arguing about things forever for the rest of our natural lives, we invest that energy instead in building our understanding and our competence and our comfort with this methodology, with candor, with authenticity, with conflict. I mean, almost every self-managing org I know has more than one really thoughtful conflict transformation or conflict resolution protocol and training around that and investment around that so that people know how to be, you know, in relationship with each other and stay in connection, stay in human connection without uh, letting an argument or a disagreement completely blow things up. And, And we've certainly been on both sides of that at the ready where we've been like, 
completely over our skis, but also found our way again. Um, so I do think, yeah, getting good at this is a practice. But the only other thing I want to say, going back to your original question, is when you set out as a, a sort of like founding member or founding set of contributors to build a self-managing system, whether it's a DAO or not, you're setting the table. It's like building a community garden. And if you build a community garden where you're like, I put four railroad ties on the ground and I'm praying, and that's the structure I'm starting with, it's not going to be an amazing, it's not going to be Central Park, right? But if you actually set a certain amount of constraint, you build a fence, you till the soil, you put a few like basic rules on the door, you welcome people in, you show them around, like suddenly you're creating the potential for a much healthier emergent community. And even within the ready we don't give governance rights to everybody the first day they arrive. We have a prologue membership and you're with the ready for six months participating in the whole process of governance, except for that last part, the consent part. And that's a right that you earn after the six months when you become a full member. So mm -hmm. I, I think you're right. You do have to have different membranes around the different kinds of membership. And I see this being done really well in Discord in terms of like, what roles do you hold and what channels can you get in? But that matters so much less than the way those same roles might matter in terms of what pods are you in, what working groups, and how do you give them authority? And the decision to give the marketing pod or working group the authority to make its own marketing decisions is the first one that everyone makes together. And that's the most important one. After that, they can sort of do their thing. And if we ever need to claw back that authority, we can. But it's you've sort of like made one decision that saves you a thousand. It's such an interesting model because I feel like in DAOs, we've spoken about this, but we tend to conflate ownership and governance power right. and all that stuff. But I think we also are navigating what it looks like to build either of those things over time. When you think about that six-month period, of course, time, I'm sure, is a helpful variable to play around with in general for a bunch of different reasons. But what do you see people actually building in that time period, like familiarity with the ready, what are those like elements that people are building that allow them to earn the ability to participate in consent-based governance or earn ownership? Like, I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah. It's funny because this leads to something I was hoping we would talk about because I don't hear it talked enough about in the Web3 space. So, we could talk for a long time about that prologue period. You know, it is about getting reps. It is about being steeped in the tea that is the principles and practices that we use at the ready, et cetera, et cetera. To me, though, what that six months is about is learning how to self-manage and how to be a person who works in a self-managing system. And anybody who comes from anywhere on earth that has not truly experienced that and thinks they're nailing it in their third week is incorrect. Like <laughs> you have to go through this gauntlet. And I know because I did it and I've watched every other person who's ever joined the ready do it, where if you're coming from a chaotic system or you're coming from a more traditional system and there is some hierarchy of some kind, your first response when you start feeling tension or you start feeling insecurity or a lack of direction is to project that onto the system. And it takes mm -hmm. time to be like, oh, if I don't like how the vegetables are grown, 
I have to water them so they don't die because I can't just keep saying to Rodney, like, why aren't these vegetables watered? Because she apparently doesn't care about vegetables. And so (laughs) that six month period, it's a little bit of like an ego death, honestly. And to me, the most important thing is, can you drop into a system that is going to feel very different to any place you've been before? Take it in, not completely like lose your way and be so triggered by this new way of working and being that you just like lose it and start to sense make enough about what's happening to contribute. So like what I'm looking for in those six months is like, are people doing self-work to deal with the ego stuff that is inevitably going to come up? And are they making enough sense of what's happening that they're finding ways to contribute meaningfully and not in a way that's performative and not in a way that's disruptive? Hmm. It's so interesting because I feel like in a lot of ways, the way that we do onboarding right now is so permissionless that we don't really create space for people to even sort of like consciously acknowledge any of those things. I mean, sometimes I think we do, but other times I think we don't. I feel like, Rodney, you're getting at something also, which is that Is the hiring process at the ready on some level like agreed upon by a group of people? Like what does the hiring process actually look like? Because it sounds like there is some level of people need to agree that this person should be onboarded sort of as like a full owner and member. Yeah. I mean, we could talk forever about the hiring process because it's really fun and interesting. And I'm really proud of what we've been fiddling with over the last couple of years. But I'll, I'll tell you a few of the principles and how it gets tuned. So our first principle for design in hiring was around more equity and inclusion. And so our process starts in a way that is anonymous. It is written. And it is very much about skill. It is not about resume or pedigree or where you've been or your education or anything like that. It's just skill-based. It is assessed in writing by a group of people. Again, they don't understand exactly what they're looking at. They don't see a resume or LinkedIn profile, et cetera. And then there are a series of quote-unquote interviews that are really experiences meant to simulate the experience of working in the ready. So uh, we expect people to self-manage through the interview process in many ways. You, you will not have a hand held like you might in other onboarding systems. The end of that process is voting-based, and it is also consent-based, and it is also with the bar of safe to try. Um, and one of the reasons that we created that is because we realized that just adding complication to a hiring process doesn't add quality to the outcome. And so the Mm. better move was to simplify a hiring process and build in a buffer that is basically you and I are committing to a six-month experiment together. We will be in a feedback loop through that six months. And at the end of that six months, we will both make a decision about whether we continue here. So Mm. those are just like a few of the things that we've worked on and tried and sort of fiddled with to break old models around hiring. But I would say at this point, the output is pretty great. And there's now a high level of confidence that if someone has made it through that and is a prologue member, they are very likely going to be a full member of the Ready in six months. And when that process gets evolved or tuned or whatever, it is done within the hiring circle with that circle's consent, not with consent from the broader organization. Mm. Hmm. So it's basically like a a specialized group of people who are thinking about hiring. Interestingly, no. I mean, 
I think they're all very special as humans, but um, <laughs> they're all just people who do what we do for a living. They're all org designers. Mm. Um, I think I was the only one in the originating circle who had any actual hiring experience, and I'm no longer mm. in that circle. Which I think speaks to a lot of the other principles around holding a role mix, because we don't have one role, right? We have many roles that we hold, different hats that we wear. And that means that generally speaking, we're biased towards finding people that are just good learners and good experimenters. And so if you take someone that just has a lot of candle power and curiosity and is a good learner, and you put them on the topic of like, what would amazing hiring look like? After six months or a year or 18 months, they are an expert. But now they're an expert without all the bias of 10 years of experience in a bureaucracy, which is pretty, pretty important. Yeah, unlearning is probably <laughs> harder than learning. So I, I so feel that. Hard. There are like two avenues I want to go down. So I'm going to say both of them and then we'll choose one to go down first. One of them is this idea of holding multiple different roles and how you transition from one sort of circle or group to another and not even necessarily saying you have to only be in one, but this idea of like being a member of multiple different groups and, and sort of managing some of that. The second piece that my brain goes towards is, okay, hiring, wonderful. What about firing? And Aaron, I know we had sort of a, a little Twitter conversation on this last week about how you manage firing. It feels like the big challenge here, again, is that DAOs are like, we're permissionless. No one has the centralized ability to fire. But the reality is that people get let go of for many reasons. One of them is that people don't like working somewhere, so they leave. That's fine. Another one is that someone's presence, even if you're not paying them, can create a situation where other people feel less productive, less happy at work, all that stuff, because that person is there. And so it feels like in DAOs, we're sort of like dancing around this weird problem right now, which is that we don't know how to kick people out when they're not good for the org. So I'm curious how you go about that. Well, totally. So the first thing is, and I think if I could leave your listeners with one message, it would be this. In order to have a healthy self-organizing system, there have to be membranes and you have to hold firm on those membranes so that everything inside that membrane can be free. You can't have freedom without structure holding it safely or you will end up with averageness or worse chaos and ultimately death, right? So there has to be a boundary condition that says we're going to hold this boundary really tightly so that once you're in this boundary, we can have an immense amount of freedom and an immense amount of flexibility. And it's okay to have multiple membranes, right? So you could have like a, anyone in the world can join the Discord and be in these 20 channels. And then anyone that goes through this filter can be an actual member of the org, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have a role. And then anyone that, you know, meets the criteria for these working groups can be part of them, right? You can have many membranes, but each of them should be held to a standard. So that's the first thing that's just like so critical. It seems counterintuitive because you're like, oh, decentralization self-management should mean that there are no no gates. And it's like, no, no, no. You want self-management and decentralization within a container that protects that beautiful thing from the rest of the world that wants to kill it. So that's, <laughs> that's the first thing. Our our membership review process at The Ready, which, which Rodney played a huge role in creating, actually, so I feel a little bit funny uh, narrating it, but um, it, it was a very slow to emerge thing because we were afraid to touch it for years. 
it was like uncomfortable. It was uneasy. It felt like it didn't really align with our values, just like you were talking about. And so nobody brought the proposal. It just kind of languished. And when people did leave, it was always like some weird social negotiation that made that happen. And then finally, we were like, hey, maybe it's time to grow up. And so we actually wrote a membership review agreement. And it is basically subtitled how we collaborate to part ways. And what we decided to do is basically say, look, if you're inside the membrane, any member of the system at any time can say, you know what, I think this other member needs to be considered, they need their membership needs to be reviewed. And we have an elected body of people who are elected into that membership reviewer role, that is a very clearly defined role that was also governed. And they bring different perspectives to bear. So things like diversity and inclusion, growth of the company, finance perspectives, skills and mastery, citizenship and values, all that sort of stuff. And they make a decision with a very simple process that we've outlined that's basically about answering the question, if this person did not already work here, and I knew everything about them that I know now, would I advocate for hiring them now? And that's the question. And basically, if the answer is like a lot of no's and maybes, then the recommendation is made to let that person go to sort of ask them to step away from the community. There is a opportunity for recourse if they want to go one more round of consideration and kind of make their case, there's a way to do that. But net net, if it's like, mm, knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't do it. It's, a, it's like a no or a really weak yes. Um, then that's not that's not good enough for us because we definitely come from the like, if it's not a fuck yes, it's probably a no school. And so we use that on the hiring on the way in and we try to use it on the way out. So for hiring and for lack of a better word, firing, mm -hmm. it's if it's not a fuck yes, it's probably a no. Mm -hmm. But for proposals internally, that's not really the rule of thumb. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Side note, a question comes up in my head. When you talk about elections, this is like completely unrelated, but feels really important. Do you reelect people to these like committees and how often do you do it? Yes, yeah, so each role will specify the nature of its election and its frequency. And in some cases, even the method of the election. So is it literally just like a hand raise? Is there a nomination process? Is it like discussed at length in a collaborative setting? You know, do, are we going to do like a Twitter space to, to discuss all the candidates? So I think uh, you can do any of that stuff. For most of our roles, we simply pull up a board, a shared workspace with a roster of every eligible member's name. We invite anyone to move anyone over into the nomination space, including the members themselves. We do a light round of voting. And then someone, when they feel called, will make a proposal. Like, all right, I've seen the votes. I've seen the signal from the system. Sharon got a lot of votes. So I'm just going to move Sharon over and say, that's my proposal. Is that safe to try? And if everybody says they consent, then it's done. And if there's some, you know, dissent, then maybe we'll discuss that or unpack or go back a step and come back to it. But usually, you know, nine times out of 10, it's that simple. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. And then how do people who are joining find their way in those systems? Like, are people often creating their own proposals where it's sort of like, okay, I'm going to work on this thing and I've created this proposal and created this role for myself versus, okay, I'm new to the ready. I'm going to like go and join these other already established groups, if that question makes sense. It totally makes sense. So there are three ways to enter the ready as a prologue member. We have a candidate pool 
Um, so if you make it through the process and the the people you worked with in that process consent, you're in a pool. And everybody knows, like, you might be in the pool for a minute. Finishing that process doesn't mean your prologue membership starts on Monday. So just to say that out loud. So you're floating around in the pool, and one of three things can happen. One is a project team who has real work to do um, asks you if you would like to join their project. And we do that in a, like, uh, first in, first out way. So the longer you've been in the pool, you're the first call from that project team. And you can say, yeah, put me in coach. Or you could be like, no, I'm going to continue floating. I'm doing other things. And I'll go to the next person in the pool. So if that's the case, which is the most typical case for us, you have a home because there is work to be done that is probably client work. There is probably at least a project steward, if not a whole project team that you are joining and they are responsible for sort of (laughs) incubating you and getting you onboarded. That being said, we do have like a very robust training that rolls for all new members to join. And there's other scaffolding to support, but you're not just like coming into this place that's not a physical place and being like, what do I do? (laughs) Um, The second way is as quote unquote, a bench hire, which is very traditional consulting speak. But if we feel like there's a lot coming, we might say to someone in the pool, look, we don't have a project for you yet. But are you willing to join now for some default rate? And we should talk about comp some other day for some default rate that we can agree to start learning and like be ready because there's a lot coming through. Um, We do that sometimes we've done that several times, but not all the time. And then the third way of entering the system is into a key role, which is something that's internal. So that's more of like a typical hire where it's like, oh, we need a person to do this particular job. And and if that's the way, then then the circle that that role lives in is paying attention to helping that person and that role clarify specifically what it is going to do. There's usually like a proposal and consent to go out and hire that person. But then once that person comes in, we don't, you know, leave them alone and afraid. Generally speaking, like if they're hired into the growth circle, I am paying attention until they really get their sea legs. Mm, Okay. So that's really interesting because I feel like a lot of DAOs are currently facing this challenge where there are some roles that we know we need, but can't find people for. Mm -hmm. And then there are some situations where it's like, okay, this working group might not need people right now, but we know that there are X, Y, and Z people who are willing able, ready to participate. Now, the filtering process for those people is not (laughs) set up well yet. But it does give me like an interesting framework to think through some of those things because I feel like right now DAOs don't really know how to deal with the fact that we're like, oh, wait, we need people for this thing. But wait, we're permissionless. Should we be recruiting people? Like we're in this weird in between of trying to figure a lot of these things out. Um, So that is very useful. It's worth noting, too, that in, in these systems, that, and that, this is true for an election when we talk about qualifications for a role. Qualifications are actually part of a role proposal in many cases. But it's also true when we talk about you know who to put in a particular project or a key role. We need to have some sense of what the people's skills and interests are. So even though getting into the system is very bias-free and identity-free, and the whole idea is just like, let the skills do the talking, let the writing do the talking. Once you're in, I have seen a lot of very interesting and nuanced conversations about, I need someone for this project. Ideally, they have to be pretty familiar with X and Y, and they're going to need to have some experience with Z. And that helps like filter the the discussion. 
even in an election where you'd be like, hey, we're electing someone to run the finance manager role at the ready. In order to do that, you have to have done something with money before. So of all these 20 people on this list, who's got some money experience? And it's like, okay, now we're talking about four people and we have a working knowledge of what they've been able to do in the past or what their curiosity or willingness is to learn. And now we're having a discussion about about how to fill it as opposed to just like, it's, you know, user one, two, three, four, five, who has hand raised to be the CMO of the DAO. <laughs> like, that sounds terrible to me. Yeah. And that's something that I think the way that you both think about power dynamics is really interesting because I feel like a lot of times, and even in this whole conversation, my brain is like, oh, but then this, like, then there's centralization here. But you have all of these really interesting mechanisms that help avoid a lot of those things or sort of take the morality that I'm like deciding to project onto the centralization, quote unquote, of some of these things and be like, okay, that doesn't need to exist. All of these things can be sort of approached in a different way. And you you sort of alluded to this, Rodney, but like comp is something that I think at some point we should probably maybe just do a follow-up episode to this yeah. on other things, comp being one of them. But then the other thing that I know we've talked about that I wanted to touch on here, but I know we won't have the time to do, is the conflation of ownership and governance power. Because, wow, we really load tokens with a lot of things. And um, I think talking about separating those two things is super interesting. So I want to do a follow-up on all of that. Before we wrap up, though, I have a segment at the end of the show which is what is your favorite thing in your wallet? So it could be nothing if you don't have anything in your wallet. But I feel like both of you probably do. So I guess we'll go Rodney and then Aaron. What is your favorite thing in your wallet? Okay, so my wallet is new. So I'm not going to directly answer that question, but I knew it was coming. And so instead, I'm going to tell you what I like about the experience of having a wallet. Even better. Which is... It feels to me like the experience of creating and funding that was very reflective of experience in DAOs and Web3 in general, because like turtles all the way down, which is like (laughs) a lot of transparency, a lot of simplicity, a lot of personal responsibility that I am not used to in transactions like that. (laughs) And it was a little bit of like a, you know, it was a little white knuckle. But then I was like, oh, this is what this is meant to be. So that's that's been cool. And also, I'm, I spent a lot of time on OpenSea. And the next time we talk, I will have better answers for you. <gasps> yes, I love that. Um, yes. Okay, cool. So what's my favorite thing in my wallet? Uh, a couple. I have a couple friends that are core contributors on the Illuminati NFT project, which is revealing artwork tomorrow. Ooh. And so I'm very excited. I have a, a handful of those in the wallet, and I'm waiting to see what the hell they look like. It's like Christmas morning before you've opened all your presents. I know. I'm, I'm very excited. I waited for my crypto coven, which I love. Actually, Rodney, that would be a great one for you to have. I is told, a crypto coven. I was surprised that Aaron didn't buy me one already because I, <laughs> the I am very witchy. And you are welcome and... to one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you both need to get crypto coven. We'll do it. We'll do it. Maybe that at least the ready has some. That's mm-hmm. exciting. Yeah, I yeah. love to hear that. That's an absolute win. Well, thank you both for coming on the show. Where can people find you, learn about The Ready, learn about all of the amazing work that you're doing before we follow up with another episode? Okay, so uh, theready.com, 
bravenewwork.com and murmur.com are good sites for playing with our stuff. And then we are very active on Twitter with at Aaron Dignan, at The Ready. And Rodney is going to have to say her Twitter handle because I always forget it. It has, my, <laughs> it has my area code that I don't actually have. It's at Rodney Evans 919. I'm trying to be a better Twitter friend. And you so. are. <laughs> And you uh, are. Honestly, Rodney, once you have a Crypto Coven profile picture, it's over okay. on Twitter. It. Yeah, Stay and changed. like a .f and a .f name as well. Yes, you need Rodney Dotty <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I'm excited to do a follow-up episode, but it was so fun to chat. Thanks, yeah, Chase. This was awesome. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.